Feel like you're beginning to slouch? Starting to hear creaks and pops in your joints? Then all things Pilates is for you. Instructors and Good morning, Petaluma. This is Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM. Good morning and welcome to our studios. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman, the Rabbi of Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council, our biweekly program meeting different people from our community who are having profound effects on people's lives in one way or another. This coming Sunday evening on the Jewish calendar begins Rosh Hashanah, the new year on our calendar. And I am privileged to have in the studio with me today Rabbi Mordechai Miller from Congregation Beth Ami in Santa Rosa. Welcome to the studio. Thanks, Ted. Thanks a lot. We're going to uh, solve all world problems in the next 27 minutes through the theology of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Is that okay with yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, it's two minutes extra, too. Thanks. Oh, that's great. That'll be great. Well, it's great to have you here and to be in conversation about these really important holidays on the Jewish calendar. Uh, but first, before we get to that, I'd like a little bit of uh, background about you, let our listeners learn who you are, how you got out here, where you, where right. that Bronx accent of yours comes uh-huh. from, and all that. Right, right. So that's going to take more than 27 minutes. Uh, so just uh, briefly, my uh, I was born in Connecticut, and as a baby, my dad, who was a rabbi, uh, took a job in Durban, South Africa. That's where I got my public schooling and got through my BA, then came back to Cincinnati and uh, went for the rabbinic degree, and so graduated in 1974 and been wandering around since then. First pulpit was in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, second one was in Canton, Ohio. And the third one was in, uh, in St. Louis, Missouri. I was there for 22 years and then decided to make the big jump from the Midwest to the Far West and uh, came out to Santa Rosa. Was there a cultural shock? I would say in some ways, certainly. It is a different country, and of course we know that California is two countries too, right? Northern California and Southern California. But I have a lot of respect for L.A. and Southern California. Yeah, well, welcome. How many years has it been since we've been here? So it's been since 2012, July. seven years already. I know, hard to believe. Hard to believe. believe. I remember when you first came. Yes. My goodness. Right, I remember when we got together. We did, we did. That that was a good good lunch that day. Yes, it was. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so this is our busy season. So first I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule uh, of preparations for the holidays to come here and be on the radio. And um, what's it like for you as a rabbi to think about this holiday? I mean, many colleagues think, okay, it'll be over soon. I have to get through it. And uh, that's what's, what's your experience? So I, I don't know if you were the one who came up with the, the calling it the rabbinic tax season. Uh, you, you may have come up with that. I may have heard that one from you. Page, I have to look at page 1040 in the prayer book and see what happens. Ouch. Boy, that's a long prayer book, Ted. You've got a lot of prayers to do there. Um, so the truth is that I probably think about it all year. I don't just start thinking about it. Obviously, you sort of go into a different gear 
during the summertime, but truthfully, I, I try to just sort of make it part of, of who I am and try to make it as natural as I can, uh, knowing that the themes that are involved in the holidays are really, you know, they don't just apply. It's like, you know, the, what was it, the song about National Brotherhood Week? You know, you act like brothers for one week and then you can go back to hating each other. I mean, it can't be like that. So I try to think of things that hopefully, you know, are worth thinking about. Yeah, I agree. I actually think about if I see an article or read a book or yes. get an idea in my head that might be appropriate, I, I actually make a note about uh-huh. it and right. try to think. And it could be in January and February, March, exactly. or some other time. I, right. I understand that. Um, in, in some ways, I, I refer to the holidays as the annual convention of the <laughs> Jewish people because uh, we have yes. the biggest turnout. Yes, there. I know, I know. Yeah, um, That's an irony. By the way, I don't know if you remember the Dayenu cartoons by Henry Leonard, Yes, but yes. there's one with a rabbi. So one panel cartoon at the end of Yom Kippur services, the rabbi is announcing Rosh Hashanah services next year will begin at 8 p.m., you know, uh, Wednesday, September. Whatever, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, actually, I did, what I did one year is the whole, my one day, I think it was Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, my sermon was an announcement for, from now until next year <laughs> of all the things. I talked about Hanukkah. I talked about oh, Passover. Wow. wow. I talked, you know, because I know yes. you won't be here, so I <laughs> yeah, may as well tell you about it now. That's so funny. That was, I, I did it in a humorous of way. Course, so of I course. I hope it didn't hurt. But right. also, <laughs> You're still here. Also, <laughs> also was making a point. That was, you know, yes, was also making a point. Yeah. So, you know, the... Uh, the you know, in my take on things, the Machsor, the High Holiday Prayer Book, is actually the most handled holy book of Judaism by the Jewish people. The, the most yes. traditional, right? More, more people hold of that course, than the Talmud and the, yeah, the, or the Bible, Bible or all right. that kind yes. of thing, except in the in the drawers in the hotels. Yes. But aside from that. Um, so and yet that that book is really challenging in the modern era. How, how do you feel about some of the prayers in there? What, do you, what do you, how do you handle it with your congregation? Do you talk about the the problems with it? Unatana uh, Tokev and yes. all of these prayers. What? So so I haven't actually approached it like that. Um, I don't know if this is getting too technical, but when I graduated, got my BA degree, it was in philosophy. Uh-huh. And one of the t- topics of philosophy was something called phenomenology. I don't know if I can still spell that or if I ever could. But my understanding after all that stuff about phenomenology was that it's an approach that's sort of more open than saying, here I am with my objective you know, measurements of what reality has to be, and I'm going to sort of put my magnifying glass on and look at the subject I'm going to, you know, and decide with my own personal modern way of looking at things how that's to be understood. Yeah. And phenomenology is saying, no, let, let the stuff speak for itself. And after you've had a chance to try and understand it on its own terms, um, then you can start to try and see if it will make sense. So I tend to look at challenging material in that kind of way. In other words, I don't try to prejudge it and say, oh, forget about it. Uh, I try to say, is there some way of looking at this that starts to make sense? And I found that to be a very helpful issue. And there's some things I found that we may take for granted in our modern way of looking at things, which actually may be off the mark. So, um, for example, I'll try and think of a a good example. Uh, 
I think the issue of love is a, is a very misunderstood concept, and of course, I'm an expert on it, aren't I? But uh, on the other hand, I mean, obviously throughout my life, I've been trying to understand uh, what's involved there, and uh, I think this, well, when I was in St. Louis, uh, the mantra that I sort of felt was out there was, ain't no one going to tell me what to do. And I think that part of becoming human and learning how to love is being able to listen to what someone else is saying and being able to, even if you don't personally agree with it, but part of your love is expressed by doing it because they want you to do it. And they're not asking you to do something harmful, but they just simply may have a way of looking at things or a way of doing things that's different from yours. And your willingness to sort of overcome your own personal needs for that is one way of loving. It's one way. And I think that sort of sense of, of sacrifice, you might say, is a very important component of it. Uh, and I think that has more to do with being loving. I want to tell you, if I may, that since I came to California, uh, I came, I found, I discovered a different mantra. I mean, we've all got the same mantra in America, but, but there's a particular California mantra, which is just because I don't understand the situation doesn't mean I can't be passionate about it. <laughs> well, and but the, I think the love you're talking about is not only romantic love, but the basic assumption of responsibility to right. love other human beings, exactly. to be compassionate and kind and caring, and part of that process is the listening part. Agreed. Part of that process Agreed. is the listening part. And I think very often we confuse love with a specific type of love, with, because love is essentially attraction, and, and we confuse it with erotic love, and, you know, of course, that's a very powerful emotion, uh-huh. and, and we don't recognize that while erotic love may be very powerful and get you to do things, on the other hand, it just doesn't usually last an indefinite amount of time with a particular individual, and learning how to sort of really understand that it's only one aspect of it, of attraction, but what really can pull you together and really find a way to be together with someone else, uh, if I may say it, to, to truly gain intimacy, you have to have this quality that you and I are talking about right now. Right. It's a form of mutual respect, Correct. et cetera. Right. So, but that Mahsur, just just leaving it there, uh, just leaving it there would be, just leaving it there would be, uh, uh, without comment, I mean, I, I've met people over my years. Uh, I, in fact, I had a young person who was in my extended family. She, when she was 15, she, her parents had taken her to the synagogue, and she heard this prayer that says, God is now deciding who's going to live and who's going to yes. die, yes. who by fire, who by right. water, who by earthquake, etc. She never went back again because she was so scared. This frightened mm. her to death. I can sure understand. And, right, we can understand that. Right. So, you know, in some ways, it's our obligation to um, convey uh, a meaning and re- repackage that those words so that they can address some of those fears that people have. Right, right. Okay. So, again, you know, when we speak religiously, a lot of it's metaphoric, okay? So, before I sort of discuss that specific issue, what I do try to do is give sort of brief introductions to various prayers in the hopes of sort of opening a door for people to maybe look at them differently. That specific one, what that is saying to me is that we are responsible for our decisions. So, you know, it's not God is sort of arbitrarily deciding who's going to live and who's going to die. It's not an arbitrary decision. It's trying to wake us up to the fact 
that when we make, when we do things, and how we how we behave has consequences, and that might just get us to a point where we can be more mindful about what we're doing. Because you know, at the end of that prayer, it says, Utafila, Utstaka, Utshuva, Ma'avirin, Etruha, which for those of your listeners who don't understand Hebrew, means basically uh, through prayer, which means, you know, trying to express your inner yearnings, okay? Chuva means... Well, it's, it's translated as repentance, but what it really means is an openness to reframing and how you look at things and changing, making necessary changes, and also by acts of charity, trying to be giving, trying to be less narcissistic. One can overturn all these decrees. That's terribly important. So, uh, it is important, and of course, everybody focuses on the first paragraph, yes, there, or the paragraphs, and those last six words are really the key. Yes. That we have the choice we have exactly. in our hands exactly. uh, to be able to make a difference. Right. I, f- I realized a long time ago, though, that I, I mean, I feel that uh, our acknowledging uh, the difficult challenges in the prayers in the Bible, wherever right. it be, is a way also of disarming the attack against it by saying that we know it's there. This will allow people to deal with it. I have a very simple example. At one time, a new prayer book came out, and the, congrega- we, the congregation had ordered it many years ago, and I knew that one of the complaints was that it was too heavy. Mm. You know, how physically. Could, how could, yeah, physically, yeah, yeah. literally too heavy. How yes. could you hold this heavy prayer book for so long during services? All that kind of stuff, right? So um, the first thing I said when I got up there, and before we turn to the first prayer is, I know this book is heavy, right? And people feel it's heavy. And I told the Hasidic story about the Rebbe holding the Torah at the age of 80, and his students said, Rebbe, don't hold the Torah. He says, the miracle of Torah is the longer you hold it, the lighter it gets. Right. So right. I told that story, yes. and that nobody complained that the book was too heavy. Right. So it taught me, just doing that, taught me the lesson as the teacher that by looking at the Moksor and taking those prayers that even that I may have difficulty with or I know people have difficulty with in the community and acknowledging that and trying to deal with it in some way really can make a difference. Right. I, I think that's a very basic uh, approach to things, even when it's not the prayer book. And that is to, in a difficult situation, to acknowledge what is a legitimate concern on the other side and then be able to, and then the fact that you've communicated that you understand and you know what the issues are, that sort of opens up a door to be able to then deal with it. Because, let's put it this way, understanding isn't justification. Uh-huh, right, okay? right. But at least it, it's saying, I'm on the same page, and I'm not just trying to tell you you're wrong. It's, it's sort of a thing that one has to sort of, you know, uh, try to, to work through in a, in a process. So how, how do you, I know I'm always conflicted um, when these holidays come. You know, our world is very complicated. Well, it's always complicated. Right now we have a particular set of complications right. in our country and in our world. Yes. Um, and in some ways, um, it would be good to address those because they're on people's minds right. during right. the holidays. Right. On the other hand, the purpose of these holidays is inner reflection, looking at ourselves, 
trying to plan our life in a better way for the coming year. And how do you do you struggle with that same question, or how what is that like for you? Right. So, so the way I understand it is, it's not it's not a compartmentalized sort of thing. That how we actually reflect within ourselves is very often a reflection of the issues that we're dealing with in general. And, and I think that that's, for me anyway, that's part of, let's say, the religious discipline of any religious discipline and a specific, you know, one that I think Judaism or the set of things that Judaism brings with it. Uh, and that is to, to look at the world as it is, to recognize the challenges, and ask yourself, you know, what can I really do to be able to understand better and to be able to process it through, to have the faith. I mean, having faith in God in so many ways is believing that God is in control and that we need to be able to understand what our role is in this particular process. So I wouldn't move away from that. I mean, it's certainly one of the things I'd want to you know, mention in, in the course of my Divrei Torah, is that I, so many of us feel that the world is like falling apart if you look at it you know, globally. You know, and what can we do? How can we, how can we work this in in a way that we can find some peace of mind? And, and use it as a challenge, you know, use it as something to help us sort of, I don't know, provoke us into, into dealing with these things in a positive way. Yeah, and, you know, and, and for me, of course, in this, um, American culture is uh, individual-oriented, and Judaism is, um, while it's, it, it holds the sacred nature of each individual, it's also community absolutely, absolutely. our responsibility right. to each other, with each other, to exactly. work on this world. Yes. And you were reading my mind, Ted. I'm I reading was, your I was, mind. Honestly, I, I was so going to say, what were you No, that was exactly, that yeah. was the point I was going to make. Right. So, yeah. we have a conflict there in, yeah. uh, in terms of the culture we have. Correct. And, and all of that. And, um, and in some ways, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are... Uh, are an opportunity for the individual to reflect on self. And uh, one of the most uh, scary things I suggested once to the congregation that on Yom Kippur during the break, they go into the a room where there's a mirror mm. and look in their eyes for five minutes yeah, and yeah. be able to forgive the right. person that they're looking at right. in there for all the things that you've come up with. I think there's a lot of truth in, in what you're saying right there. Yeah. yeah. So, do you know what your themes are for this year? I've been still pulling them through. Yeah. Uh, I, the truth is that I'm, I'm seriously, I'm trying to work out a way. I think talking about God is important because I think that a lot of people don't believe in God, but I think a lot of that has to do with what they think God is. And it's possible that if they had a better understanding of, of I can't say really, because it's not like I have a complete picture, but I've given a lot of thought, done a lot of study, and hopefully found some things that might be helpful. So, you know, just recently, you know, somebody was saying, well, I, I was at a stage in my life where I believed God didn't exist. And I said, well, in a sense, God doesn't exist in this particular reality of ours, that, that the level of God's reality transcends, goes beyond our reality. So you can see why people choose to look at it that way. There's a lot more, obviously, that needs to be said on that particular uh, idea, but you know, I, I hope that I can articulate something that is interesting for sure, you know, as well as challenging and that isn't overly philosophical. I always feel that my best sermons touch people. 
Right. That's, that's really what I'm important. trying to do, yes. I remember I uh, met a Baptist preacher in a little town in Georgia where I my first congregation mm. after seminary, and he, he told our little clergy group that every July he takes three weeks off and he writes 52 sermons. Wow, wow. And that he uses those sermons throughout the year, and he really doesn't have to prepare That's every amazing. week. And to me, that was one of the worst ideas. <laughs> I mean, at, at one level, I understood it. Wow, that would be nice. I yes. Just wake up, go in, and just do I it, know, and, and all of that. But right. isn't this about where the world is at a particular moment and where we are at any particular moment? Agreed, agreed. I mean, some of the best sermons I believe I've done came because of a specific occurrence that happened maybe 24 hours before I had to deliver the sermon or less, you know, because it was of moment. I remember my, my latest preparation was about two hours before the service and sitting in a drive through in a bank Mm. I had to make a deposit for on the era of Rosh Hashanah, the eve of Rosh Hashanah. And an idea came to me. And I already had an idea that I was going to talk yes, about that. Yes. And I get the receipt for the deposit, and I make some quick notes <laughs> on it. And that was my text wow. <laughs> for that night. That is so it's, it, it's really uh, an important time for mm. people to see, I believe, that we are also struggling with these same human uh, pieces and all that. Right, it's a good point. Uh, one other theme, a little bit different, has to do with adversity. Right. How do we deal with adversity? And right. and I actually have a, something that happened to me that I feel might be a really good illustration. And I'll I'll just leave it as this. It's I would title it. Um, let's see, driving one o one. Driving 101. Yes. Oh, that's a that's an interesting class and highway. <laughs> there we go. Uh, so you uh, got the you got the double. I uh, hope there's something right. concrete in it that yes. uh, you'll be able to. Exactly. Get. Okay. Sorry about that, Jim. I didn't mean to do that. Okay. Yes, he did. Jim, he meant to do it. <laughs> no, it's part of his DNA. It's I, I realize that. Part of my DNA. I know yes. Well yeah. yes, exactly. So, uh, what happens, you know, when you look out at the congregation on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? Uh, often it's people you haven't seen before or haven't seen since last Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, you know, the people who come. Mm -hmm. Mixed in with that group are the people you see every day, every Shabbat, every weekend, um, many times during the year, your board members, etc. What's that mix like for you to see that? So, so you know this, I'm sure you're familiar, Barov Om Hadrat Melech, uh -huh. right? There's something so beautiful about looking out there and realizing that people care enough to come to these occasions. And, and I actually am moved and touched and hopefully inspired by the fact that there are a, there's a lovely crowd that gathers, and I'm very grateful for it. And, you know, you want to give back. You want to try and, you know, you want them to leave saying, I'm really glad I came. You know, that's ultimately what, what I'm aiming for. But uh, I'm not sure if your question is pointed in a different way. But I, I really, yeah, I love it. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I was actually thinking that uh, when I was uh, a student at the seminary, mm. I was serving this congregation as an interim rabbi while the rabbi was on sabbatical. Mm. And I remember feeling initially a resentment for all oh. these people who showed up. Why are they coming for years, particularly for Yisra? Why are they coming for Yisra and they're yes. not here for life, for the mm -hmm. things that are living? And yes. 
you know, that's the, the, the honor of aging and the yes, privilege of agreed, aging, agreed. of being able to value and realize exactly what you said, right. that everybody is in this room for all different kinds of reasons, with all different kinds of joys and sorrows, mm-hmm. and that's what it's, that is what it's all about. Right. Right. Is what it's all yeah, about. Ap- appreciation, right? Appreciation. I heard a really one another rabbi say, and it stuck with me for, for you know since then, is that he said that appreciation is the very basis of spirituality, mm. and that's actually a profound statement. It is. It is. It's a, and we might yeah. also use the word gratitude. Yes. You know, the sense right. of gratitude right. in, in our spirituality. True. A sense of gratitude. It's. Um, so your congregation is in Santa Rosa, Congregation right. Beth Ami. How long has the congregation been there? I think that they, we just celebrated a few years ago a 75th anniversary okay. is what I, I remember. So, yeah. I know your congregation has deeper roots. Yeah, we're double that. So really? So 150 yeah, I, have, I have minutes in my office from 1864. Oh, that's marvelous. Yeah, it's the same board agenda as next week. <laughs> but it's, okay. it's the same stuff. But it's really, uh, really important. And I think for people who come in, uh, the congregation who have families who have been there for a long time, yes. being mixed in with the newcomers and hopefully welcoming to them is right. really an important Very piece. Very important, I agree. And, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you hope people will feel by the time the ELA comes at the end of Yom Kippur? <laughs> Like well, besides, besides being hungry, exactly, and I'm probably being overdued, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I hope they'll feel a sense of warmth. I hope they'll, I hope they'll have some inspiration, you know, as they move into the rest of the year. Of course, you always hope that somebody's going to discover something where they say to themselves, "Gosh, I'd really like to experience this a little more often than not just once a year." Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think you know, want to be realistic. Yes, and of course, uh, I'm sure I can say this, that both of our congregations would welcome anybody, any Jew who would like to come in. Uh, I don't think either of us use tickets. No. Right? That's right. And so we are welcome to come, and our schedules are on the B'nai Israel website, b'naiisrael.net, and uh, your website up in Santa Rosa. It's it's Bethami, B-E-T-H-A-M-I dot S-R for Santa Rosa. Okay. So that's our website. Yeah, so our schedules are there, and mm-hmm. it would be great to greet people yes. uh, on that occasion. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I want to uh, thank you so much for coming into the studio today, wishing you and your family and your community a Shana Tova and Jika, a good and sweet New Year. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. And listen, thank you very much for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Please join us soon for in three minutes for our second segment.
Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted. Again, I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman from B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma uh, and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. Welcome back to the second segment. Uh, we completed during the first segment a whole discussion about the high holidays, at least from a rabbinic perspective. And here in our second segment, I want to welcome Carol Appel, who has the title of Sonoma County Concierge for the Jewish Federation and for Sonoma County Jewish Community. So we're going to find out what that means. I've never called her to carry my luggage, so I just want to clarify that. So welcome to the studio, Carol. Hi, Rabbi Ted. Thank you. It's great to have you here. So before we define this uh, position and all that, well, yeah, let's define it first. So what, what is a community concierge? So you're right. I don't um, pick up people's luggage. And but you find out about their baggage. Uh, uh, that is interesting way of putting it. Yes, I find out their baggage uh, quickly enough. Um, so I am the penultimate uh, Jewish welcome wagon lady. Okay. And uh, what I do is work on behalf of all the Jewish organ- organizations, agencies, synagogues, in reaching out to really unengaged and unaffiliated Jewish people in Sonoma County and meet them where they're at, hear their Jewish journeys, find out what their needs and wishes, wants are, Uh and try to network them. So I'm a a networker, an event planner, a matchmaker. Wow, that's quite a job. So let's, let's find for a moment, find out how you got to that job. So first of all, what, what were you doing before you did this? And talk then a little bit about the position as it was created and all that. So there's an unlikely connection between what I did do uh-huh. and what I'm now doing. Actually, um, my longtime professional career was, and in some some small part still is, as a Pilates teacher. Well, we dealt with Pontius Pilates uh, as a Jewish people a long time ago. A very, very long time ago. And okay. at some point, a, Ger- a German a nationalist, Joseph Pilates, developed an exercise program uh-huh. in the 40s and um, developed a system of exercise that um, uh, really uh, builds an extremely high degree of abdominal back strength, greater flexibility, it improves people's uh, options for daily living. And really, that I started working in New York City at the Pilates studio after I had a knee injury while I was pursuing a dance career. And uh, as I got involved in the Pilates work as a student, I realized that I wanted to do it professionally. And so taught it, really, 37 years and um, in New York, in Los Angeles, in San Francisco. I um, co-owned four health clubs with two brothers, uh, all with increasingly large Pilates programs Mm -hmm. that were under my direction. And ultimately, I opened my own studio in Petaluma and had that studio for five years before I moved it to a large independent health club in Petaluma. So, uh, long story long, I had a thriving career. Uh, I had some, a little bit of notoriety and some good street credibility. I um, served on the board of directors of our professional peer association, consulted in the business Pilates, 
ran a teacher training program. I really had a, a good, strong legacy. And after so many years, you know, it was time for a change. It really was. And how I got to, to this work is um, after teaching Pilates for so long, I was really looking for something just as meaningful because the Pilates work is very powerful both in the process and, um, and in the results that it gives the, the doer. So I wasn't satisfied in just any kind of work. And uh, so it led me down the line, down the search to a nonprofit and nonprofit around the world. Well, why not nonprofit in our community? And why not just in my own community? And at that point, I said, let me have some trusted conversations with people in the Jewish community my rabbi, other rabbis, people at different uh, agencies. And lo and behold, at the same time, there um, was a lot of discussion going on with the Sonoma County Leadership Group as to how to spend this three-year grant that the Jewish Community Federation and Endowment Fund of San Francisco had offered to Sonoma County on the premise that it was for the benefit of everybody. And um, so this advisor said, what about this? Does this strike your your curiosity? And I said, yes, let me learn some more about it. And about that time, I came into contact with you and learned more about and interviewed for this, this position, Jewish Concierge of Sonoma County, and to really work on behalf of everybody in outreach, doing the pastoral work of reaching people on the outsides of the institutions. And How many years? It's been four years? So this is now the fifth, fifth year. year. I lost track of years. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So I would remind people that the community that, uh, not only the Jewish community, but our listeners from whatever community, that uh, affiliation with organizations and uh, community groups is uh, a low percentage uh, in Marin and Sonoma counties. So uh, we estimate, for instance, that only approximately 13 to 15 percent of the Jews in Sonoma County are affiliated with synagogues. And if these statistics are not too much higher uh, in the uh, non-Jewish community. And so this job is to try to connect people with not just the synagogues, the houses of worship, but also with other Jewish activities that may be happening. And that's what you've been working on. That's right. Um, today is a different day and age than where we were 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And people really affiliated with institutions, with religious institutions. And yes, I think this is true outside of the Jewish religion as well. Um, congregations are struggling for members. They're struggling to connect with people who, particularly younger, younger families and millennials, who have who are struggling with all the options that are out there. You know how they spend their time and money, how they congregate, what's meaningful, what's relevant, and in the end, people do want relevant communities. So, institutions are working really hard to find ways to reach out to people in relevant ways. How, do, how did you discover that they really want relevant communities? What, where, where does, was that part of what you discovered or the assumption that was made? Well, what I typically do, um, 
I'll just backtrack a little bit as to um, how I meet people. So typically, I'll create a light, what I call a light-touch Jewish event. For example, um, a gourmet honey tasting in a supermarket in anticipation of the Jewish New Year holidays. And have a table of honey and and um, other ways to taste the honey. Maybe there's some triggers that a Jewish person might recognize. An app, piece of apple or a piece of uh, challah bread. And as uh, people come across the table and and see these triggers, it starts a conversation that um, is different if it's a Jewish person or a non-Jewish person. And if I meet a Jewish person, then those triggers really start a conversation and a relationship and really an invitation to meet at a separate time and talk more deeply about what their what their Jewish journey is and what their interests are. And out of that comes um, a conversation and revelations, really, that people are yearning for community, not just programs, but ways to be with other like-minded Jewish people uh, in ways that are relevant, in ways that um, resonate with where they are in their lives. Well, those who, that's, you know, Rabbi Miller and I were just talking about right before the end of the segment before about the sense of community that's part of Jewish life and the sense of individualism that's part of uh, American culture, particularly in this part of the world, that the individual and what the individual wants and needs and finding uh, a connection that can bring those two together really is uh, is vital for, I believe, the health of, a, of the community and the health of the individual because studies have shown that people who are in community and have a, a wide array of relationships are stronger health-wise and, and socially in, in the world. And it's really important. So I remember the first that uh, we did something at Whole Foods when you first started. Uh, right. We had a, uh, a honey tasting there. I think it was that, or was it wine tasting? I can't remember. No, it was a honey tasting. It was honey tasting. Yes. yes, and people were coming up and. Well, it's really surprising. It's really surprising when you're doing your thing. You're out and about, and you stumble upon um, a honey tasting, for example. And uh, in fact, some of those earliest conversations that I had with people that I met at that tasting, I still have conversations with. And so really, I have, where I start with meeting people is the beginning of a long relationship. And time after time, people want to be in community. I think it's an existential yearning. Young people don't really know that that's what they want then and there, and maybe they don't. They're busy individuating and building their careers. But particularly when people start families, then they want to be with other like-minded families. And I think that there is this crossover between um, having a strong community, having a havara, which is, you know, Jewish for like a a subset community. Uh Um, It's a smaller community within the community. So people want to be, they want to find other parents with kids that they can hang out with and have a Sabbath dinner. And I think, yes, the stronger that community is, the more, the more of a layering there is with the institutional communities at large. And one can't do it all, 
Judaism is important as important in the home as it is in community in an institution. Right, it's across the board there. Yeah, and you had shared with me uh, this Ten Commandments for Cultures of Belonging that fits in with this part of our discussion here about people seeking community. So wh- where was this, uh, where did this list come from here? Well, there's, this actually was developed um, by a woman, Sarala, I actually don't remember Sarala's last name, a PhD from Israel, who is a professor of um, communications and has worked with the Israeli JCCs and has developed community centers uh-huh. across Israel and has developed these very, very strong community programs there. And she's adapted that to and for our communities here. And, you know, what they, the premise of it is that it's important for everybody to feel that they belong, that they're missed when they're not in community, that they bring assets, that just their person is of value to the community, and everybody has something to offer. And people want to know that they're missed, that they have something to give, that they create a stronger community, and the community will thrive because of more people in it. Right, and some of these commandments, and are these commandments, uh, this list, is this list of ideas, uh, I don't want people to think God gave these, you know, at Mount Sinai, are these uh, directed toward the organizations, or are they directed toward individuals? Because well, I think they go either way. Well, I think they're, they're really principles of belonging, and I uh-huh. think that institutions and anybody who is in any kind of outreach position um, will find that these principles help. For example, um, that when when you get together as a, as a group of people, that you want belonging and connection to drive that meeting and to drive that group's reason for being. That um, face-to-face interactions is more important than just digital interactions, for example. So we might reach out and invite people to a program, but it's really a different thing to talk on the telephone and say, please come, I'm inviting you to come be a part of this, and then to have that face-to-face interaction. So much more powerful than just a constant contact email that says, hey, welcome and, and come to this event. Um, when people bring what bring their own um, their own gifts and their own strengths and skills to an organization, then they feel more valued as well. So these are these are these are tenants that um, help people feel a, a stronger sense of community. It reminds me that uh, an old uh, colleague of mine from way back is. Uh, Dr. Ron Wolfson has published books and has put together this institute on what he calls relational Judaism, into which these principles fit very clearly about the need for people belonging and how institutions, synagogues, Jewish community centers, and this would apply to all of the organizations in the community, any organization, uh, need to see the people first as the principal and uh, having the connection with the people. And by doing that, um, you're going to bring 
people into our midst because they're looking for that. They're seeking that. Uh, he will be here in the community sometime in the spring to do a seminar on relational Judaism. So I will encourage you at that point. And I've met him. Have met him. Yes, yes yeah. I've met him, actually. Yeah. We've got a couple degrees of separation, surprisingly. Uh, yeah. Um, he is really one of the um, thought leaders on on relational Judaism, on connecting. And yes, it. the relationship is the glue that holds people together. It's not enough today to just have great programs. And any organization, any religious institution spends a lot of time developing school programs and holiday programs and social and cultural programs. But it's not enough just to have a great product out there. You have the guts of it is the communication and the connection that happens between it. And it's you can understand it in a way that uh, there's, a, there's a heartbeat model. If you imagine an EKG and there's the blips, you know, of the heartbeat and then, and then the quiet part in between and then the blip, which is the heartbeat. And if, the, if you think of programs as the heartbeat and the strong sound and the quiet point in between, that's where the relational work happens. It's part of the engagement process. It's part of what we do. And really, that's what I see my work as these days is sort of the fascia. I'll pull, I'll pull my Pilates and body awareness of fascia as the connective tissue of the body. My work in relational Judaism and in outreach is kind of the fascia and the connective work between the organizations and between in and around the programs that happen. Yeah, and that's, uh, that relational piece is really uh, essential because probably up until the 60s and 70s, uh, the, the marketing was an attempt to sell tradition. You've got to be part of the Jewish community. You've got to be part of your community because that's what people do. And that's what's been done. But that's not a sufficient selling point. It's got to be more personal. And it's got well, to be our world is more complex, and there's many more ways that people choose to spend their time. And in the 50s and 60s, families really identified themselves with their institution, with their synagogue, or perhaps with their church. And today, um, families are not so connected, you know, um, we're in a more transient world, and people are transplanted away from their ancestral homes, and they spend their time in much more creative ways than just at the synagogue. And so there's many priorities that people have, Absolutely. not just a Jewish priority. It's not the only way that they identify. And so if they do become engaged Jewishly, they want that to be as relevant and as important as these other components, political interests, environmental interests, health and wellness. You know, people spend a lot of time working out at yoga, at Pilates, and spin. And many people find that to be spiritually very important. Absolutely. And, and their Jewish identity has to be just as important to them and yeah. worth their time and worth their money and worth their energy. Yeah, and I've heard that many times. You know, it's like they have a list of the things in their life of which 
they want this to be a part, but they have to figure out how it all fits in and how to make it part of their life. And sometimes, I, I, in the beginning, when I first heard that, it was like shock. I mean, this is the same as belonging to the to the health club, and you know, this is the same as the sports, going to the baseball game on Sunday afternoons and all that. But for many people, I understand that it's because of the complexities and the nature of life here, that's how it works, and we do have to fit in. It's uh, um, it's, it's a constant building process, and we hope we can continue to reach out. So this this job of yours and uh, was uh, funded and this uh, funded over these years uh, through this organization called the Jewish Community Federation, and it serves the now nine Bay Area counties. Right. And so, you know, I, I think I mentioned to you the other day. I once taught a course on the alphabet of Jewish life and listed about 20 organizations who are known mostly by their initials. So, saying JCC, JCFS, uh, uh, JFCS, JCFC, all these initials. So, JCF is the Jewish Community Federation. That's, could you tell us a little bit more about what it is? Sure. So, it's uh, the full name is actually Jewish Community Federation and Endowment Fund. And it is a philanthropic organization that um, partners with agencies and synagogues um, and strategically does grant making to improve the Jewish community and in some, some regard also the secular community. And they're very strategic in how they, they offer grants um, for um, different initiatives, like caring through community initiatives, helping the helping elderly programs, um, funding programs that deal with the aging, um, funding, say, the Russian immigrant programs. Um, they also um, fund initiatives around building resiliency, Jewish resiliency. They uh, fund Israeli initiatives and and work towards strengthening Israeli society. Um, so as an example of how they've been up in Sonoma County more recently, uh, if we go back to the 2017 fires, the Jewish Community Federation um, quickly um, raised both local and national funds in close to a million dollars over you know, a very short amount of time and use those funds to support um, the um, recovery of the Jewish community and some in the secular community to, to support the recovery efforts. So um, we gave, um, we supported the Jewish Family and Children's Services, as we know, JFCS, uh, in their... Um, in their efforts to manage the survivors um, in, in doing social services. And the Federation also funded the, the Jewish Community Free Clinic, which is our gem of a free clinic up in Sonoma County in Santa Rosa that offers free health services to the working poor. And um, the Jewish Clinic really saw a jump of about 40% in their, in their services after the fires. So the, so the Federation really supports um, 
the community in, in different ways. And for me, one of the ways that it materialized was helping to facilitate and organize uh, volunteerism, days of volunteerism, up in, up in Sonoma County and Santa Rosa in particular with Habitat for Humanity. So now, as of uh, October 27th, will be the eighth time that I've done a pop-up uh, service day with Habitat, partnering with Habitat, and helping to bring really mostly Jewish uh, individuals and organizations from throughout the nine region area, help them do a day of service within Jewish community um, in support of fire recovery. So they help the entire region, not just not just the Jewish community. Here, this is serving Habitat for Humanity, who's helping with a deep housing crisis. So just, uh, it's kind of fascinating that the, uh, the Jewish Federation system probably started, I believe, in Baltimore at the end of the 1800s, when some of the Jewish organizations discovered that they would do better if they collected funds together and allocated it out. And actually, the United Way model came from that system, from that system. And so, to, to translate Jewish Community Federation for the general audience, it's a, it's a United Way model of raising funds and allocating it out to various agencies in the community to provide services, social services, uh, health services, other kinds of uh, social service, social services to the general community. So that's the Jewish Community Federation, and they work really hard in raising funds and supporting all of us, uh, and but not giving direct funds, but for programming and for services that we might provide, and also providing social services uh, in Israel uh, to the Jewish population there. So it's a um, fascinating, fascinating organization. And we are very pleased that they funded this particular position. And uh, any last words before we finish up? Well, um, we have about 15 seconds or 20 seconds. I, I think that, you know, that we can agree that building authentic relationships are really the key to successful programs. And that's what all of the institutions are looking for. And so I'm happy to work on behalf of the entire Jewish Sonoma County region. And we're very happy that you're here working with us. And thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Rabbi Ted. And thank you for being in our studio today, Carol Appel. And listeners, thank you for listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCALP, Petaluma, California. We'll see you or listen to you or you'll hear us in about two weeks.